Happy June, everybody. Oh, wow, Montanans, come on. It is summertime. Well, I hope you're doing good this morning. I hope you're enjoying the weather. Uh, we're going to go ice skating today. Hope you brought your ice skates. We're going to go on some thin ice today. Are you okay with that? Can I make you a little uncomfortable today? I'm certainly going to be uncomfortable today. I can tell you that because of what we're going to talk about. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, I feel like there was something I wanted to say. Oh, Jeff had mentioned Link immediately after the service for those of you that are really new to Mount Helena and want to find out more. Um, you know, that, that just takes like 10, 15 minutes of your time. There's some food there. It's a great opportunity just to connect and, and get to know a couple things about us, and, and I'll be sharing a little bit with you there. So don't be intimidated by that. If you were considering joining us for that, that would, that would be great. Um, yeah, so you're going to want to do that. Uh, last week, I started talking. Uh, we, we finished up John chapter 15, and we had spent a few weeks looking at that, and, and really the way that passage of scripture wraps up. It wraps up talking about uh, Jesus, you know, discussing that, you know, the world has hated me, it's going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And he starts to talk to us about that uncomfortable idea that perhaps the world doesn't like us and that we will be persecuted. And we talked about some of the things surrounding persecution in the world and we looked at some different statistics and different stories that are going on. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 people a day are killed for being Christian. In the world, there was just some more attacks in Burkina Faso. I told you a little bit about those last week. And there's just this reality check we have sometimes. And in, here in the United States, because, because we live in a nation that grants freedom to all religions, we have the opportunity to practice our religion um, in a significant amount of freedom. And so we sometimes lose sight of the idea of being persecuted and being challenged by the world around us. We're, we're very much in an insulated situation here uh, in a lot of ways. And that's provided us an opportunity to then serve the world in a significant way. You know, many, many missionaries have gone out of the United States because they had the opportunity to be raised in the church and trained and those kind of things. But it's just not a very fun or popular idea to not be liked. Nobody wants to be hated. No one wants to be persecuted. No one wants to be rejected by their community and the people around them. And we do all kinds of things in order to help ourselves uh, assimilate into the community around us. I mean, here you are in a group of people, and undoubtedly, if you're a guest or not very familiar with the people here, it can be a little awkward, and so you want to do things to help yourself blend. You want to look the part. You want to say the right thing. You want to make the right connections. And you know, when kids go to school, they start doing that. You go to a new church, you start doing that. Whatever circumstances you find yourself, you want to blend in that community. It's not fun, the idea of being rejected by the group of people around you. We, we, this world, we started talking about what we called the world system. Jesus starts to differentiate that he has brought a new system into the world. So there's a world system that was dominated by sin, we talked about. And we talked about there's a ruler of that system, a ruler of the world. We call him Lucifer or Satan and many other names. And the scripture refers to him as the one who has authority in the world system. He has authority because sin came in and corrupted. And we're going we're gonna to read the whole of Genesis chapter 3 today as part of my message. But I want to lay some groundwork before we dive into the different things we're going to discuss today. And I want you, while I'm talking through these different things, keep in mind that I'm talking about this contradiction of two systems, the world system and the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he ushered in a new authority, a new kingdom, if you will. And he began to establish it on the earth through his people. It was the message that he preached. It was the message that John the Baptist preached. It's the message that he challenged his people to preach, is that the kingdom of God is here. It's coming. It's amongst us. It's around us. And that's a whole study in and of itself. But I'm going to continue talking about this uh, tension that we operate in, being in a world system and being in the kingdom of God. It creates a very uncomfortable place for us. But in order to lay the groundwork, I want to uh, talk about a couple other things. I want to discuss this idea that 
God, who God is. What is the character of God? God is the, he's the ultimate. He's the supreme authority. He's the one from which creation derives its existence. Job, in the book of Job, it says, if God removed his spirit, creation would cease to exist. We exist because God empowered creation. He spoke, word, he just, the words came out of his mouth and it was created. We got to understand, there's just something that's a little bit mm, kind of hard to imagine or picture that we draw our very existence from the ultimate in the universe, God. And the scripture talks a lot about the character of God and who he is. I want to start by looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. We have these concepts in our lives of good and evil right and wrong. And I've been talking a lot about that lately. It keeps coming into my messages. I even was thinking about it this week. Like, why does this seem to be this burning theme somewhere inside of me that God keeps bringing out this good and evil kind of situation? And God is the, the definition of good. He is love. That is his character. It's his nature. God is just. That is actually who he is. He doesn't just practice it when he feels like it. He doesn't just love on occasion. That is who he is. That's his very nature. God is holy. I mentioned this to you the other day. What does holy mean? He's set apart. He's other. Like we've got all of this, this everything that we see in the world around us and and it, it, it shapes our reality, and God is other. It's kind of, it's kind of a concept that you've got to wrestle with a little bit to picture in your mind. He's, he's, he's just above. He's more. He's ultimate. And it's from the character of God that we derive our understanding of right and wrong. True. God is true. God is not false. It's not possible for God to be false. He is true. It is his nature. And when he created the world, we come into this understanding in our situation, in our being below him, of what right and wrong are based on who God himself is. There's some kind of philosophical kind of things that we have to wrestle with sometimes when we're trying to understand our own reality and our own situation and the tensions in life we find ourselves in. And so we have to stop and, and realize that God is without flaw. He is perfect. So in anything that is good in the world, if we want to set our sight towards what is good and towards improving in that and towards perfection, although we know perfection isn't something that is really completely attainable for us in this life, when we want to set our sights on what is good and what is right and how to get there, we set our sights on God. If we want to love perfectly, we look to love himself. If we want to know truth, we look to truth himself. The embodiment of these ideas of love and truth and whatever is good and right in the world derive themselves from the character of God himself. Now, I am going somewhere with this, so stick with me. We call them the communicable or incommunicable attributes of God. There are things about God like love, like justice, like holiness, righteousness, goodness, whatever, words that are we can understand and they come into our reality and they're a component of our own lives. But there's also things about God and his character and nature that aren't necessarily, necessarily communicable, which are things like his omniscience, his all-knowingness, his omnipresence, him being everywhere. That is not something you and I can do. We can't be everywhere at once, and yet God can. He's supreme to this framework of creation that we find ourselves in, and he's capable of being in all places at once. He knows all things. He's in all places. There are things about God like that that, that we don't even 
Look, we're limited in our understanding. Our language, our minds, our imaginations will hit boundaries at some point, and God himself is beyond those boundaries. He goes on and on and on and on. So even our, our most perfect imagination of what love is, is insufficient when it is compared with God and himself. So we're limited in what we can understand or what we can grasp and take in about God. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? I want to talk about creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it's the very last verse of Genesis. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was, what's it say? It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When God spoke creation into existence, every, in that account, in the very first chapter of Genesis, when it's talking about God creating, each day he says, and God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. And on the sixth day, it was very good. The condition of creation in the beginning was, as far as our understanding is, perfect. Man was without sin. There was no death. There was no corruption. I think when we think about creation, like we imagine, like some of you are probably going gung-ho on your landscaping and yard work right now, and you're like, you got this picture of what your backyard is going to be like, and it's going to be amazing. And we, the, the garden, the creation in the beginning, when we picture it, we think in those terms. We look at our creation around us, and then we imagine the greatest thing we can think of in that framework And I want to suggest to you that it was even better. It was good. God himself was good. It came from him. It came out of his perfection into existence as perfect. It was good. We can't, I'm just not sure that there's any view we can come up with today that would be accurate in reflecting what creation was. You ever... You know, when, when we say something is true, of course, we, we have the truth, true and false kind of uh, thing that we wrestle with, but we also, if you're in construction, when, you, when something is true, it's straight, it's level, it's, it's right, it's something is true. The scripture talks about having a plumb line. Some of you contractor types will know what a plumb line is. It's a string with a plumb bob on the end. And if I hold it from the ceiling and let it sit long enough, it forms a perfectly straight line because of gravity. We would say that if something measures up to that accurately, we would say it is true. Creation was true. It was in the alignment that it was meant to be in. It was all square and straight. Not to, don't hear what I'm not saying. But it's, it's, it was perfect. It was right. Thus, the rest of the story comes evil. What is evil? You ever heard of the problem of evil? Philosophers through the ages have tried to solve the problem of how an omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God could coexist with evil in the world. There must not, you know, philosophers don't believe there's a God because evil exists. And anyway, I don't want to make your brains fry here today, but there's some things to think about there. Evil is interesting, and I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm opinionating here. I mean, I think I'm hitting this accurately. I wouldn't stand up here and talk to you about something if I didn't think I was right about it, although we know that we're fallible. Evil is not unique in and of itself. If God is over everything, he's the supreme, top of the chain, ultimate, then evil is not an equal and opposing force to God. It's subservient to God. It's under. So what's, what's, oh man, we're going down nerdyville here today. (laughs) Newton's third law of physics. Any physics teachers here? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We, always, we view life oftentimes in perfectly balanced opposing things. And so if I do this, then the, there will be an equal and opposite reaction. And sometimes we view good and evil as 
in that way, as though they're equal and opposite. But in fact, they're not. Evil isn't a, it's not even self-existent. Oh, God. God is self-existent. He sustains himself. He doesn't need anything else in order to have his definition of who he is. He just is. I am that I am. I just exist outside of anything you can define. But evil draws its existence from good. Evil exists. Evil derives its nature by counterfeiting or twisting what is good. Creation in its original state was true, but evil is counterfeit. For a time will come. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. It says, For the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine, but with itching ears they will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We, this is just a, such a stern warning from Paul. And mankind always has the tendency, because he has a sinful nature, he wants to make his life easier. And so he will twist the truth in order to accommodate his own purposes, to make himself comfortable in his own circumstances. Maybe if I twist the truth a little bit, I won't be guilty anymore of whatever it is I'm guilty of. I won't be wrestling with the thing that I'm wrestling with because it no longer will be wrong. What is the definition of sin? We talked about this a little while ago. Sin literally is to miss the mark or to be out of alignment. Remember I demonstrated for you, if I'm, if I'm shooting a bow, which I don't know how to do, but if I were, I'm pretty confident I have to line up my arrow with the target I want to hit. And the further I get off of the alignment with that bow, the further off I'm going to be from the target I'm trying to shoot. And so it's a really helpful way in understanding what sin is. Sin is being out of alignment with God's basic nature. Good, God's nature is good. When we pull ourselves out of alignment with God's nature, when we take what is true and twist it into something else, we're out of alignment. That's what sin is. And we have a sinful nature. We're out of alignment with our original true design because we have pulled ourselves out of alignment with our creator and pointed somewhere else. Last year, last, year, last week, I made the really uncomfortable statement that when we choose to sin, we are making ourselves allies with Satan's rebellion. Now, that's a gross thought. Nobody wants to think that outright, but that is where the rebellion began, was with Lucifer or Satan. And the scripture doesn't teach us a lot about that, and I think that's on purpose. But we now have sinful nature as well. In and of our own capacity, we want to sin. We want to pull ourselves out of alignment. We're selfish. Unless any of you are the exception. We're selfish, and we, want to, we don't always want to do what God wants us to do. We don't always feel good about it. So we pull ourselves out of alignment. And this is such a stern warning that just rings in my ears all the time. We want to be careful about what we teach and what we believe and how we believe it because it's important that we be in alignment with our Creator. And we'll, I'll unpack a little bit of that as I go. I want to talk about the law of first mention. When, when you're studying the Scripture, one of the, one of the most common adopted ways of learning something is, from, is to start with the law of first mention. I think in some of the biblical study designs, it's like the fourth law. And the idea is if you're going to study a doctrine, in other words, a belief, something that you're establishing is true, go back in the scripture to when that doctrine is first mentioned and you build from there. Okay, let me give you a real life example. Not necessarily biblical. My son came upstairs the other day and we have an old VHS player. And he was wanted to watch The Princess Bride. And we said, well, it's, I, he was trying to figure out how to make this VHS work. And he's like, it's taking forever. Well, you got to rewind it because it's physically on a tape and you have to rewind it. Like, I just didn't see it coming. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. That a kid today would have no idea how a VHS works. And so he hits rewind and he's sitting down there for a while. And finally he comes upstairs and he goes, it is taking forever to rewind. I'm like, oh, you have to push stop first and then rewind. Remember those days? 
It goes way faster if you do that. Something that we would consider just basic, fundamental understanding of how the world works <laughs> is not necessarily true. Here, here's something that's probably even more accurate. It's the cell phone situation. I don't know. I, I don't like not knowing how stuff works. If I find something new, I want to understand how it actually works. What are the principles by which this thing works? I'm not comfortable just assuming it works. And cell phones are like that. And, and kids growing up today have no idea what all the foundational technology was that causes that stupid little thing to work. You can play games on it. There must be games inside of it, right? I mean, you ever tried to explain to somebody, it's like, well, it's not really on your phone. It's actually out on the internet somewhere. What? If you, had, if you didn't grow up, okay, I re, I, there was a day when the phone hung on the wall and it had a little dial that you turned and depending on how far you turned it and even going back before my time, there was an operator on the other end managing it plugging in wires and stuff. If the phone rang a certain way, Ellison was like this. If the phone rang a certain way, it was your house that was getting the phone call. Each home had a different unique ring to it. So you knew, because everyone's phone would ring in the whole town. But if it were that one unique ring, you knew whose, whose call it was. Anybody remember those days? Yeah. Reluctant hands going out there, but yeah. Okay, your teenager didn't get to have a private conversation with their crush in those days because they were attached to the kitchen wall to the phone. All right, we understand that today. We understand that there was Morse code and, the, and it's traveled over the wires and pretty soon there was telephones and they developed over time. Pretty soon you had wireless telephones. Those were amazing. You had answering machines and this technology keeps building on itself to the point now where we understand that we have Wi-Fi and data you ever try to explain this to somebody that doesn't understand it? Well, don't, well, it's connected to the Wi-Fi, so it's not using data. Well, where does the data come from if it's not from the Wi-Fi? Well, that comes from the cell phone tower. Well, well how do I know it's connected to the tower and not using the Wi-Fi? Like, ugh. <laughs> See, step by step, we come to an understanding of how something works. And sometimes we have to go all the way back to the beginning to understand why things are... Why do we have these computer phone game console things because step by step in a very short period of time actually pretty impressively we've ended up building technology upon technology to arrive at the place that we are today when you're studying the scripture and you want to understand the fundamentals of something you go back and find the law of first mention where is it first discussed in the scripture and it begins to lay the groundwork for your understanding. And I would suggest to you that the first three chapters of Genesis, you could almost skip from there after you read them to the Gospels, and they would still make sense to you. There is so much fundamental information in the first three chapters of Genesis that tell us about our own predicament, about our own situation, about our own reality, and what we're dealing with today. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, number one, how did, what was this first deception that was attempted here by the serpent? You know, a lot of people will say, well, he tried to get her to doubt what God said. He didn't actually quite do that. He said something that God did not say. God did not say that. Okay, he didn't, Satan didn't actually accurately quote God. He said something other than what God had said. Eve recognizes that and corrects him. No, that's not what God said. What he actually said was this. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Trick number two. Okay, maybe he said that, but that's not really what he meant. It doesn't really mean what it says. That's not really who God is. There's something else at work here, Eve. 
God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, we could just camp out on that stuff and unpack that. It's so much there. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Okay, They didn't know they were, and now they know they are. They learned something. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Great foreshadowing of these two kingdoms we're talking about right there. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of you, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. The, man's, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Such a powerful story. So many clues in there, so much information that brings us into a place of healthy understanding of our situation today. One of the things I want to focus on here is that when man chose to disobey God, he brought upon himself a curse. God in his justice also punishes. It is just to do so. There's a wrath the scripture refers to, the wrath of God. This is hellfire and brimstone as I get. (laughs) There is a wrath of God upon mankind for his sinful nature. It's not necessarily something where he's up there shooting lightning bolts at everybody that screws up. It's just we are operating in a cursed system because of our sinful nature. Creation fell. We call it the fall of man. Man was innocent, didn't know good from evil, was dependent on God for his understanding of right and wrong, and God was keeping it really simple. But in his effort to be like God and his allegiance with that rebellion of Satan, disobeys God, brings upon himself and the creation a brokenness and a curse. And death enters the picture. Man begins to, his journey towards death. Very sad, sad story. But there's a concept that develops in time out of this. We see it in creation very simply. You disobeyed, you brought yourself under the wrath of God, there's a curse because of it. Then when Moses comes and he brings the laws and God begins to speak, God starts to build in more detail about who he is and what his nature is. And in there, there's a real strong concept of the idea of blessing and cursing. That there's blessings 
and there's curses. And when he's given the law to the Israelites, he says in this next verse that I got, he's saying to them, and there's numerous times throughout Deuteronomy and Leviticus where we see this concept, God says to the people, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way, by, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. See, God begins to set up this idea, and we start to see the consequences for sin. So we get the big picture out of creation, but we begin to understand that if we live life in such a way that we're disobeying God, we're taking ourselves out of alignment with him, if he's, the, if he's the holy, the good, the loving, the perfect, and whom we're supposed to model ourselves after, and he gives us information about himself, we align ourselves with that and we journey that direction. But the more we pull ourselves off of that path, the more we go into this cursed system. Now, this was part of the law, but it's still part of the overall creation as well. This basic concept is still at work today. If I operate in rebellion against God, I am not positioning myself in a place of blessing. Isn't it, again, coming back to the idea of evil, or there being evil in the world, there's, like, there's always this understanding of what is good, and we, and we want to align ourselves with what is good, but we're always being pulled in the other direction towards being selfish. Other gods, I'm God, or other things are God, my addictions are God, whatever my God might be other than God. There's always this temptation to pull out, pull away, out of alignment with God in that. It's just this imagery and the idea of it is is really important. Isn't it interesting that we tend to think of original as being good, and then perversions as being evil? It was in our nature. It was in creation. Just a fundamental principle in the world. We want to be aligned with God. We want to operate in alignment. We want to position ourselves in a place of blessing. Now, we have this genie in a bottle kind of concept about God. And it's like this idea that if I do good, you're going to bless me. If I do good right now, I expect to be blessed in the next 10 minutes. And if I do evil, I expect to be struck with lightning in the next 10 minutes, right? You know, we, we have those kind of concepts about that God's sitting up there and he's like, oh, nope. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, no, 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 it doesn't. I don't think it's more complex than that. It's more complex than that. I want to remind you of something I talked about years ago, and I bring it up every once in a while, is the idea of automatisms or laws of nature. If I sow a seed in the ground and I water it, nature takes its course and a plant grows, right? Theoretically, hopefully. That's the idea. But we live in a situation where we're expecting instantaneous everything from God. And yet God has called us to operate in a system of sowing and reaping, not microwaving. Sowing and reaping takes time. Okay, I can't microwave raise my kids. I can't microwave build a good marriage. I can't microwave a deep relationship with God. It's something that takes time. Sowing of seeds, planting, watering, nurturing. And if I'm operating in that good system of God, in time there is blessing after blessing after blessing because I've brought myself in alignment with his system. So it's a journey, not just an instant. But when we take ourselves out of alignment with God's way, we start sowing seeds. Only they're not seeds we want. When we sow seeds of selfishness, we will reap selfishness. When we sow seeds of evil, we reap evil. That's just the nature of the system that God designed, fundamentally. He has grace on us. He has mercy for us. He loves us. He forgives us. He reconciles those screw-ups. But if we make deliberate decisions to take ourselves out of alignment with the God that loves us, and by the way, what's God's motive in all this? Love. He is trying, he wants to reconcile a creation back to him that will choose him. He's not forcing it. He won't make you love him. He won't make you do the right thing. He won't, he'll, he'll inspire, he'll motivate you. How's that? He might twist your arm a little bit from time to time. He's not afraid of punishing. 
He'll paddle your rear end like a little kid that needs it sometimes. Sorry, I said that out loud. I'm like two decades too late to say that. (laughs) But he will. Why? Because he loves. When you're raising your kids, think about this. I mean, we're, fl- we're flawed as parents, right? Sometimes we're just ticked off at our kid and we punish them because we're angry. But at the end of the day, we are motivated by love when it comes to our kids. And the reason we punish them, the reason we are stern sometimes, the reason we try and adjust their direction is we care about how they turn out. We care about how they grow up. And we're, we're definitely terrible at it a lot of the time. But it's a great image of what God is doing for us. He is ultimate. He is love. He is the definition of love. And he's trying to get us to be in alignment with who he is. Not out of alignment, which is sinful. Sometimes we, we, we have a tendency to put good in one column and evil in the other column. And, and it just we check boxes down either side about our behavior and those kind of things. But it's more complex than that. God is always trying to pull us out of one, from one side as much as he can as we continue to be sanctified and grow in our relationship with him and understanding that our actions in our life and our behavior would more and more align themselves with the good. All right, I've talked too long about this probably. My point being that it's not the sowing and reaping takes time. It's more of an overall system than it is momentary decision after decision. It's something that we invest in over time. And we stumble along the way and we make mistakes. But God is gracious and he's good. And he's constantly, like almost like gravity, pulling us into alignment with him, wanting us there. We talk about the economy of God. And I've touched on it quite a bit already. The idea of whatever we sow, we reap. But we do this in other areas of life. We have this system. God has a system, and it's good, and the more we can get in alignment with it, the better off we're going to be. We do it in politics. We do it, what else, economics. We do it in health, our health. Okay? Pretty confident some of you are pretty politically motivated. You have an ideology about what you believe about politics. And you tend to believe that the more people pull themselves into alignment with your understanding of how politics should be, the better off the world's going to be. That's why it's our ideology. We believe it. We believe that if, you know, and we have all kinds of ideologies out there. If, if, the, if, the, if they just pull more in line with this system, if they just be more capitalist, if they just be more communist, if they just be more socialist, it would work better, whatever your ideology is. We do it in economics. I guess I kind of touched on that in terms of politics, but... We do it in health. Boy, if you just exercise the way my system is the best system for you to get in shape. My diet's the best diet for you, for this situation. Pull yourself into alignment with my diet, and your life's going to be good. The kingdom is like that. Only the source is the perfect one. The one whose very character is love. And he's trying to cause us to leave behind our idols, the other things we worship, the other things that pull us, our vision, in different directions and keep us in alignment with him and his ways. There's some uncomfortable scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Start with 9 and 10. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit or perform homosexual acts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When we pull ourselves out of alignment with God's system, with who God is in God's character, we pull ourselves out of his kingdom into the worldly system which is cursed. When we choose to operate according to the worldly system, we are cursed. And we operate under that curse. And the more we pull ourselves into alignment with God, the more we operate in the kingdom of God concept, where we find blessing, love, relationship with God, grace, 
for one another. Now, before any of you are tempted to be self-righteous about this list, pretty sure we all can see ourselves in there somewhere because we all fail. I don't think he's talking about going to heaven. If that were the case, we'd all be hosed. Ain't none of us getting there because all of us find our name on this list somewhere. That's not the issue. But there's a kingdom of God that is within you. There's how many scriptures, how many parables, how many things does Jesus say about the kingdom of God? Kingdom of God doesn't come about by your careful observation, he told the Pharisees who were looking for it, but it is within you. It's a system that we operate in. And these are things that are out of alignment with his system. And so we recognize these things and we want to bring ourselves into alignment with him. But we go on. One more verse. And such were some of you. (laughs) But here's the hope. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We all cave in. We all make mistakes. We're all broken in this world system. We all participate in the same thing Adam and Eve did. And God has given us a great grace and forgiveness and love that we can leave the world system behind and participate in the economy of God. You know, you guys know the Lord's Prayer? And one of the lines in there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, and we pray this when we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, there, there is a ushering in of the kingdom of God that you and I are responsible for, a relationship with God. It's not just for us, but it's for us to take to the ends of the earth. Jesus said when he left, to the ends of the earth, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what I've taught you, baptizing them, all those kinds of things. So there's this, this kingdom that's coming where the will of God is exercised, where he is the authority. I think it's really important to understand that when we're talking about kingdoms, what, what, how is a kingdom, why do we call a kingdom a kingdom? Why do we call it that? As a king. It's not a democracy. It's not a democratic republic. It's not a dictatorship. It's a king. All authority and power is his. Thankfully, he's a loving king. It's a kingdom, but kingdoms have boundaries. They have jurisdiction. There's boundaries to the authority. People, you don't have to submit yourself to God's authority necessarily. Many, many people choose not to serve God. They choose not to accept his message. They choose not to step across that boundary line into his jurisdiction where he is the king. Sometimes we lessen the concept of salvation down to simply praying a prayer and then getting on with our lives. That's not it at all. It's about crossing a boundary into another kingdom where the jurisdiction is no longer that of the world's broken system, but it's the jurisdiction of the living God who made a way for the people he loves. We've got to cross that boundary. That's really what a better understanding of what salvation is. We're saved from a broken system. We're saved from the cursed system. This, this is, stuff's heavy. It kind of sucks. Because of sin. Because people are broken out there. They're hurting. They're confused. The church is in a, under a lot of pressure. We talked about the idea of being persecuted. I'm going to tell you, it won't be long. In the ch- I mean, people will argue that the church is persecuted today in the U.S., and that's laughable when you consider the rest of the world. But we're not far away from persecution ourselves. Jesus said, count the cost. Are you willing to be unpopular? Are you willing to be hated? Those kinds of things. Not that we go build a bunker in the mountains or anything like that. We have a message of hope. That there is right and wrong in the world and God is rescuing us from it. He brings healing. He brings forgiveness. He brings reconciliation of the broken creation back to the creator himself. We have a message of hope. A kingdom of hope. And when we get caught up too much in the, um, the idea of telling the world how wrong they are, it's just foolishness. Our message is a message of hope. And we enter this process of sanctification when we 
enter the kingdom, you know, the idea that we're constantly being made holy. And when we choose to continue to deliberately live in sin and reject the system of God, we, it's just, it's arrogance in the face of God. You gave me a free gift and now I'm just going to take it and live in my own system, my own way. But really, God isn't up there going, great, I'm going to strike you with a lightning bolt. His motive is love. Does his heart ache for those that refuse to bring themselves under his guidance? Yes. But what would love be if you couldn't choose it? Would you want to make your spouse love you? A few of you might. But if you're anything like me, I want my spouse to choose to love me because they just love me. And God does that for you. He wants you to love him because you simply choose to love him. And he isn't going to make you do it. We have to navigate this tension of both. We're in both, you guys. We're wrestling with a world system which our bodies are stuck in. And we operate under the curses. But the more we bring ourselves in alignment with the economy of God, the kingdom of God, the system and the principles of God, the more we open ourselves up for blessing. That peace that, you know, you read those fruits of the Spirit and things like that in the Scripture, you're like, oh, I want some more of that. Let's, then you've got to be in alignment with God. He doesn't teach us about himself and his ways and what is good and what is not. The perversion of what is good, that's what, that's what false is. It's taking the truth and perverting it. So what evil is, is taking good and perverting it, twisting it, making it something it's not. And yet we have everything at our disposal to bring ourselves into alignment with God. The way we live matters. I keep asking myself, like, why do I keep, why does this just, why do I have this sense of urgency and irritation about this issue and it keeps coming up in my messages? And I'm like, and I was thinking about it this week and it's, it's just very simple, really. What it boils down to me, in my mind is the church is being challenged to compromise. The church is being pushed to change its thousands of year old views and truths for something else. There's a twisting going on. We've seen a massive unraveling of the fabric of the family, which is the, fu- the building block of creation. We see it right in the law. Right in the law. You use the law of first mention, you go right back to creation. The building block of God's kingdom is in family. And we see it unravel. And we're seeing twisting after twisting of the truth. And yet we go back and you know, we could talk about it another time, but what does it mean to interpret the scripture? Going back to the laws of first mention, looking at whether or not literal interpretation is actually reasonable in the beginning. And then we start unpacking it from there. Oftentimes, and you probably know if you've tried to defend anything in terms of doctrine, people will do a lot of mental gymnastics to make something fit their understanding. And yet we have to go back to the fundamentals. What does the scripture say? Who is God? How do we interpret the scripture? Those concepts are taught by the scripture itself and have stood for thousands of years. And we're in a moment in time where we're under a lot of pressure to decide to do it differently and to change. And I do think we need to change. There are lots of things that need to change about the church and the way the church interacts with society. But half of them seem really good and half of them are really wrong. And so we need to stop and take inventory in our own lives of, are we looking at God? Are we looking at what is true? Are we looking at what is good and aligning ourselves with it in order to move forward? And again, what's the motive? Love. If our motive isn't to love the world around us, to love the people around us, regardless of their condition, we've missed the point utterly. Then we start getting into the territory of being Pharisees. This is a really tough moment in the history of the church, particularly in the United States. There was a law recently passed in California. It didn't actually, it got vetoed, I think, by the governor, where people who preach have to submit their notes to the government for examination that they're not preaching something that's against the law. It won't be long, and what we do is going to be regulated. It's a fact. It's been heading that way for a long time. Even now, we, it's, 
Even the, even the fact that I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to you today is a risk. Our risks are growing. And that's uncomfortable for me as a leader. Sometimes I'm like, God, ugh, you really called me to lead in this season of the life of the church? To, have, to go from being popular to being unpopular in my lifetime? That sounds sad. I don't want to have to lead through that. Yet that's what we're called to, you guys. There's a kingdom of God that is superior to all other kingdoms. It's, it's where there's grace and there's love, forgiveness, not self-righteous baloney to accuse the world of all kinds of stuff, but that we could be a voice of hope in the world. I'm just going to skip to my last verse because I got off the rails there. We talked about not being conformed to the world, not being stained by the world. There very much is a strong push in the New Testament to not be conformed to the mindset of the world. If we don't, if we look like the world, listen, we got to ask ourselves some questions if all of our beliefs line up with the world's beliefs, if our system lines up with the world's system, we have some serious questions to ask ourselves because it's in stark contrast to what the scripture teaches us. Last verse I want to read to you is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, in this idea of two kingdoms. It says, And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is a transition that will take place someday. And we have a lot of hope out in our future we want to set our sights on. Would you stand, please? Hope you don't mind that I was a little vulnerable with you. Got to keep it real. Okay, it's not easy. And it's not going to get easier. <laughs> but there is a worthwhile cause in the kingdom of God and for the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've provided with us so richly your spirit, your mind, your scripture, community and friends. God, we just thank you how much you've blessed us. Father, I pray that you would, in our wrestling with these issues and the weight of the worldly system and sin and all those things that just weigh us down even talking about it, Father, I pray that you would be sowing those seeds of this is why you came. This is why the gospel is important because you are the one that saves us, that rescues us that calls us your children and adopts us. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to lead us. Lord, that you'd continue to stir in our hearts. and Father, help us to be good stewards of what you have given us. Lord, and in the ways you want us to change, Lord, lead us in that. We know that we need to keep growing and changing and moving and reaching the ends of the earth with this good news. So, Father, we pray your continued guidance and leadership in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.